In this interview, I'm joined by David McMurdo, Scottish mystic, YouTuber, and author of Experiential Spirituality. David recounts his upbringing in Thurso, Scotland, and how a lifetime of frustrated spiritual seeking was resolved in a profound spiritual experience that changed everything. David details the results of this transformative experience and discusses themes such as religiosity, falling into the spirit of God, the zeal of the convert, advice for prayer and meditation, and the mystic's view of identity. So without further ado, David McMurdo. David McMurdo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, I'm very delighted to be speaking with you, David, today, and uh, fellow Scott, uh, for a change. What a breath of fresh air to hear your accent. <laughs> I can't tell if my accent has been an advantage for me or a disadvantage for me online. <laughs> well, it makes I've, me... certain, I've certainly learned to pronounce my words more specifically, especially anything with a T, because I naturally have silent T's and people often don't understand what I'm saying on account of that. But Well, I like it anyway. I enjoyed your book very much, Experiential Spirituality, which you recently published. And uh, I'm curious, you know, before we get into that, um, what can you say about your your childhood? Can you give us a, a sense of, of your childhood and how you grew up? You say in, in the introduction to experiential spirituality, you say, um, great spiritual questions have been at the forefront of my mind since I was a child. And from the earliest age, I would read as many books on the subject of spirituality as I could. So I'm curious, could you give us a sense of your of the context of your upbringing, where you grew up? What was your family situation, etc.? Well, I was very fortunate in, in terms of my upbringing. There were certainly negatives, like my father and my mother, they divorced when I was very young. But I was raised by individuals who, although they had no interest in the spiritual themselves, I was always the black sheep in that regard. They have no interest in the big questions in life. I was always very fortunate because I was always given the freedom to explore anything I wanted. So whenever we went out downtown, I would always want to buy these books about the great mysteries of the world, things like the lost continent of Atlantis. I'd be interested in the in spirituality and my mother would, even though she didn't have an interest in those things herself, she would indulge me and kind of nod, you know, politely and just let me get on with everything. So I had a lot of freedom growing up to explore the avenues I wanted to explore and I explored as much as possible. So I was very fortunate growing up. Yes. Did you have any kind of religious, um, orientation at that time were you were you uh, going to church or doing anything of that nature no my mum was i was always a loner i was always an introvert and my mum made repeated attempts to try and socialize me so you know i was in the cubs i was in the scouts and she did make me go to sunday school not for religious reasons but just as a way of trying to get me to interact with the other children just because i was such an introvert even from a very young age so no i never had any kind of religious upbringing although because I was so interested in the great spiritual mysteries and the religions of the world, I would often frustrate my family because whenever Jehovah's Witnesses came around or whenever the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came around, I would always invite them in. The problem was that at that age, what I didn't appreciate is that they're not, they weren't really interested in the kind of exchange of ideas I was interested in. What they wanted were converts. So I was looking to learn something from them and they weren't really interested in that kind of exchange of ideas they just wanted me to say i'll join your your church but i still met many nice individuals doing that and yeah it was uh it was a fun time and maybe you could give um we were just discussing actually uh before we started recording that you're living in thurso 
and that's not too far from where I grew up, actually, on the Shetland Islands. It's it's kind of far, 12-hour ferry, but in terms of the broader scheme of the world, it's uh, basically neighbors in a way. So I'm curious, and we were saying that you, you, st you still live in Thurso um, all this time. Um, what is it about Thurso? Can you give a sense of the place and why it is that you, you've been drawn to stay there? Well, growing up, you know, I was always inspired by my surroundings because it's kind of a, a stereotypical thing to say about Scotland, but Scotland really is a land of castles and other ruins. And even living in Thurso, I grew up with that. There's Thurso East, there's a ruined castle there. And so that really ignited my imagination uh, growing up. I have lived in many different places, including, as I said to you, in Glasgow. And I enjoyed living in Glasgow. There's a there's different things to enjoy in city life, I find. I like the diversity of individuals you can meet in a city. You're going to a pub one night or a bar, and you'll never you never know who you're going to encounter. Whereas in a small place like this, you know pretty much what you're going to get. But if I have the choice between a city and a place like Thurso, I'll have to choose Thurso because... There are so many different places to go out. There's a, a place called Holborn Head a few miles out. My subscribers here on YouTube, uh, they know it well uh, because I often talk about how I go out there just to meditate, just to pray because things have changed a lot. A lot of people used to go out to remote places like that. Uh, there's a, a cairn out there. You know, People used to place a stone every time they, they made it out there. But very few individuals go out there which is a shame, generally speaking, but it's good for me personally because I tend to have those lonely places to myself. And in fact, the very first video I've got on my channel is me going out there. So that's what I like about places like Thurso. It's just, you've got, even though it's a, an urban area, you've got such easy access to remote places, the kind of places that are very conductive to introspective practices. Hmm. So that's very interesting. So in experiential spirituality, you... Um... You include your own parts of your own biography, parts of your own journey, and um, perhaps I'll set it up here. You said one morning I sat contemplating the nature of prayer. This was nothing unusual, for I'd always considered such things. And on that particular day, I was trying to understand what would happen if two souls, both worthy of having their prayers answered, made requests to God, the honouring of which would lead to contradictory results in the world. How would God answer both of those prayers? You began to wrestle with that, almost like a koan, um, in a sense, and it led to a really rather extraordinary experience. So could you give a sense of your journey? We've talked a bit about your childhood. Could you give a sense of your journey from your childhood up to uh, this uh, quite profound spiritual experience? Well, my journey up to that point was one of frustration because although I didn't realize it at the time, what I was hoping for very unconsciously what I was really hoping for was to stumble upon some book or some individual that would give me a piece of information that would be the key to unlock everything. And suddenly the heavens would open and I would understand everything that I wanted to understand. And, and this feeling I had inside me that I needed to discover more would be sated. You know, the, the, the search would be over. Unfortunately, that never came. I never encountered such a book. As, as many different traditions as I studied, I never encountered anything that made me feel that I'd really reached any particular goal. And so at the time I had that particular experience, I had resigned myself to uh, living a, a mundane life without the need to ask those questions because that search had borne no fruit up to that point. And so at the time I had that experience, you know, I'd just come out of a particular relationship. I was working that job. I was really leading a, a normal life, but, but that experience completely changed everything. 
And well, what happened? Well, I was working in this particular office and I was working with two other individuals and I was always the first in in the morning. And so the first thing I did every morning was I put the kettle on because I, I knew my co-workers when they came in, they would expect that kettle to be, to be freshly boiled. I sat down in front of my PC, I switched the PC on and it was as I was waiting for the PC to load up that I was con began contemplating the very question you just mentioned, which again was nothing unusual for me because I always like to to contemplate those big questions. I like to, to wrestle with those things. It's something I never shook, even having grown disillusioned in my own journey. And at once I had an experience that I can only describe like an epiphany, but far more powerful. And I suddenly felt the, the world around me, the, the environment around me, the space around me fell up. I, I recognized that it was permeated by a presence. And I knew immediately that that presence was the presence of God. But I also knew simultaneously that it wasn't that God had, had simply arrived, arrived out of nowhere. I knew immediately that God was always present around us in that same way. It's just that I was now aware of it. And I, I say in the book, I believe, and I, I can say up to the present day that I could not articulate the happiness and the peace I felt in that moment. But of course, not having been raised in, you know, if I had been raised in some kind of Christian context, there's all kinds of terms I would have uh, attributed to that experience. But having been a, a, a drifter, a seeker, I really didn't have any term to assign to it, which in hindsight, I recognized was a good thing because it left me open to, to all these possibilities. But it, it, what it seemed like to me at the time was that God was in some way honoring my search. I had searched so hard. I'd studied so hard in the hopes of finding that one piece of information that would unlock everything. And having become disillusioned with that search, it seemed like God was finally saying, okay, here I am. You know, it's like he was throwing me a bone. Here I am. Here's this experience. Now you've got to, to work your way back to me. And that's precisely what that experience initiated once again. Once again, I began on the spiritual journey, but with a greater... But, but with something to go on now, now I wasn't groping blindly. Now I had this experience to hold on to. And it's something that I still hold on to, uh, to the present day. And I know that many individuals are really tired of me reciting that experience, but it's so fundamental. It's so important to where I am today. And I really think that when you have an experience like that, when God gifts you an experience like that, if you wish to put it that way, you really do have to testify of it. To, to, to let others know that there is something out there to find and that God does, as the scriptures say, reward those that diligently seek him. I'm wondering if you could describe the experience um, a little more. Was it an intellectual uh, oh, recognition? No, no. Was it emotional? Was it, were, were there physical sensations? Could you perhaps give a sense of this, this sort of sense, the sensory experience of this? The uh, best way I can explain it, and it's something that makes sense to me now, but at the time, the best way I could have explained it is that in asking that question, you know, what would happen if, if two individuals prayed to God and they were both worthy of having that pair answered, but they contradicted one another. And asking that question, the, the way I put it at the time, and it's still a good way of putting it, is that that was a question the mind could not wrestle with. It was a question the mind could not handle. So as I put it, it was like the question pierced the roof of my intellect and allowed this, this flood of what I might call now gnosis or divine insight to come in. It was a question that reached beyond the mind and therefore the answer came in the form 
of a non-mental experience. It came in the form of what one would call a spiritual experience. And that's why it's impossible to articulate because spiritual experiences by definition, you know, they cannot be adequately articulated and they cannot be grasped by the mind. They can only be known through direct experience, which is why my book is called Experiential Spirituality. It's something that I'm keen to emphasize that it's not enough to just talk about the spiritual. It's not enough just to conceive of the spiritual and think about the spiritual a lot. The spiritual by its very nature must be experienced. I'd like to ask you a bit more about that uh, word gnosis later and its and its implications. You write, um, but first of all, you write, though that feeling of peace and joy lasted for many days afterwards, the experience of being as aware of God's perspective as I was of my own lasted for only a few minutes before I was left seemingly alone again, having no idea what had just happened to me or why, but with my desire to understand our reason for being not only renewed, but more powerful than ever. I was also left with the conviction that the soul known as Jesus Christ had somehow been responsible for the experience, despite the fact that Christianity to me was just one tradition among many that I had no particular reason to favor. So I'm really curious about that. Why do you think, what was this? What was the Jesus aspect? So you've described it as a sort of um, non-conceptual, I suppose, experiential gnosis, piercing the intellect. That's, that's very evocative. Um, what? Why Jesus? And what was your relationship to Christianity up to that point? Um, yeah. Besides attending Sunday school, and besides Christianity being one more religion among many that I discovered, I had no real relationship with with Christianity at all. It could be that Jesus Christ became prominent in my mind after that, that I associated that experience with Jesus Christ purely for cultural reasons, because as secular as Scotland is, historically speaking, it is still ultimately a Christian country. So it could be as simple as that. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Although speaking from my current perspective and from my current understanding, I would simply say that the divine was relating to me in a way that made sense given the context that I had grown up in and given my past experiences. If I'd had that same experience in India, for example, I may well have attributed it to Krishna or a similar figure. And um, so I don't put too much weight on the fact that it was Jesus Christ that I mentally attributed that experience to, although that certainly did lead me down in a certain direction, because as you'll know from the book, I write the book from a Christian perspective and a Christian Gnostic perspective is specifically. So I'm, I'm, not so, I'm not so eager to jump on the idea that, that you know, this is attributed to Jesus in the way that a Christian would understand that because I understand the divine in a different way. I understand that the divine relates to different individuals differently depending on what they need in their experience. And so, yes, I don't, I, I wouldn't see that, that, experience in the same way that a Christian would see it, because they would immediately see it as a, a born-again experience or something similar, whereas I'm very careful not to not to categorize such profound experiences so simply and just put it in a box and say, okay, that's what it was, that's why it happened. There has to be something of a mystery remaining in such experiences, because the mystery is, is, is part of the, the wonder of the spiritual, after all. Can you say a bit more about that, the mystery, why that's important, and what, what is the mystery? The mystery. What, what, what function does it serve that makes it so important? Well, it's not so much a function that it serves 
I mean, it could serve a function in that it keeps individuals seeking for the truth, but it's just the very nature of the spiritual. If we're talking about God, we are talking about that, which by definition, or by most definitions, at least certainly any theistic definition, we are talking about that, which is ultimately limitless. And so one can never say that they fully understand God. And therefore, how can one say that they truly understand the spiritual? In fact, the very first, the, the video that I uploaded today, I upload a video every single day. And the video I made this morning is called Silence is Your Best Friend. And it's not scheduled to be uh, made public till seven o'clock tonight. But I was talking about the relationship between God and silence. And I like to quote as I did in this book, I believe in a later chapter, uh, the 13th century Catholic mystic Meister Eckhart, who said that there is nothing in all creation so like God as silence. And like with, like with God, silence is, is something you can't conceptualize. It's something you can't articulate. And the moment you try to articulate silence, even if the word you speak is silence, you destroy silence itself. Same as when you try to conceptualize of silence. Even if you conceive of silence, you have destroyed that, in, that intellectual or that mental silence. And so these things that we're discussing here, God, spirituality, silence, these are infinite and therefore they must to some degree remain mysterious. I think it would be very hard to look at any experience and claim that you understand it fully and then seriously claim that it's still a spiritual experience because a spiritual experience brings you towards that which again by its very nature is infinite and that cannot be grasped by the mind and so I'd, it's not so much that mystery although it could encourage people to to seek further and indeed it does it's not so much that mystery is some kind of has some kind of function as such it's just an inherent part of the spiritual because of what the spiritual is if that makes sense <laughs> yeah very interesting and you know i'm curious um what were the consequences of this you know, experience what did you notice in the immediate aftermath you've talked about peace and joy and i'm actually also interested in what you said as uh, the experience of being aware as aware of god's presence as i was of my own um, that is interesting um, could you say something a bit about that and then perhaps in general about any other experiences you noticed did you did you notice any change in behavior or personality or um, other than your renewed inclination for spiritual seeking in front of me, I have a desk upon which my monitor is sitting. God in that experience was as real to me as this desk. It was as undeni undeniable to me as this very desk. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. It's like having a friend sitting beside you. No one's going to come into the room and tell you that friend is not sitting beside you because you know in all manner of ways that that friend is sitting beside you. That's how clear it was to me in that experience for those few precious minutes. That's how clear it was to me that God was present with me. As for the change in my in myself, well, an experience like that can't help but change you. Everyone around me noticed the change, although even at that early stage, in fact, the, the, the beginning of what I would regard as my, my spiritual journey, I knew better than to try and you know, testify of that to people who really weren't interested in spirituality. And living here in Scotland, I'm surrounded by people who have no interest in spirituality. I already knew better not to try and explain such an experience to them because they would just put me down as crazy. They would just put me down as insane. But they noticed, they certainly noticed the change in the sense that I had a far more positive attitude towards things. They didn't understand why, because I never explained why, <laughs> but I had a far more positive attitude towards things. 
And yes, I just had a, a renewed, a renewed interest in life itself. And that was obvious to everyone, even though they never knew the reason for it mm. until I wrote this book. <laughs> mm. Very interesting. And so that sense of God's being as real to you as the desk, was there a sense of, um, how could I say, um, relationship with another, you know, figure or being or intelligence or some or, or so? I mean, here it sounds like there was almost a kind of unity. Oh, uh, yes, or... absolutely. There was a real sense of unity. There wasn't even a sense of unity. It's I've had many different spiritual experiences after that point. And one common factor in all of them is that it's not that it's not even that you know something in the intellectual sense. I would go back to gnosis again. What gnosis is is what Christians would call divine insight. It's a knowledge and a knowledge in the deepest part of your being that, that something is so. And in every one of those experiences, including that original experience, I just knew for a fact that not only was God with us at all times, permeating the space around us, even in this world. We are one with God in a very profound way, a way that, again, cannot be grasped by the mind. And that's one of the most frustrating things about such experiences, at least I found, is that by their very nature, they're spiritual. And we, we categorize things as physical, mental, and spiritual. We have these different categories for a reason. And spiritual experiences, not only can they not be grasped by the mind, they therefore cannot be articulated in language. So a frustrating aspect of such experiences is that you would dearly love to come back from such experiences and articulate them perfectly to the rest, <laughs> to everyone who, who will listen. But you can't do that because such experiences can only be can only be undergone. And so the best that any individual can do is point others the way to experience such things for themselves. Yeah, I'd actually like to ask you about that, your um, suggestions for um, pointing or practice or journey, you know, in that in that uh, direction. But you mentioned something earlier, which I'd like to ask you about. Um, you said, uh, which is your the direction that this experience uh, sent you in. Uh, quite interesting, actually, you write, Immediately after the spiritual awakening uh, that I described within the first chapter, I was left without any direction. But since I had the impression that Jesus Christ had been responsible for the experience, it seemed that the logical thing to do was to try and read the Bible again and to become a Christian. And so I did. I became a member of a local church and was soon overtaken by what I call the zeal of the convert, the, the zeal of the convert, though I would be surprised if I was the first to call it that. I became the very kind of religionist that I've criticized throughout this book, arrogant and yet ignorant. In my case, it was simply because I'd never before had anything to believe in. And having now obtained such a thing by way of an experience that was undoubtedly genuine, I was prepared to defend it at all costs, even when I knew deep down that I really had no good reason to believe the ideas that I was espousing with such certainty. So it sounds like you, you took a, a, a kind of turn into the, uh, what you call religionist uh, uh, way. And the, the interesting point you make there where the experience was so profound and genuine that somehow that got uh, conflated or tied up with the, the doctrine that you took on then as you became a Christian. Perhaps not. that's not the right way to say it, but I'm wondering if you could say something about, about that time period. Yes, the zeal of the convert. <laughs> it's, a, it's a phrase I really like. Again, I wish I could claim to have been the first to come up with it. I'm positive I'm not, though. Yes, because I associated that experience with the figure of Jesus Christ for whatever reason, and because that experience kind of left me 
there on my own. <laughs> I, I, the logical thing in my mind to do at the time was to, as I say in the book, join that local church. Maybe I should look at the camera, that may be better. Was to, to join the, the local, that local church and was to, was to become a Christian, uh, a mainstream Christian. It seemed like the obvious thing to do. But at that time, I became very obnoxious precisely for the reason I explained in the book, which is that never before in my life had I had that kind of structure because I wasn't raised with a, a religion at all. And that's how the zeal of the convert comes about. The zeal of the convert happens to individuals when they've never had that kind of structure in their lives. And, and therefore, when they get it, they become zealous for it and they want to protect it. There's a lot of uh, psychology in there, but that's, that's the way I became. And because I thought that Jesus Christ was in some way responsible for that experience, I, I, I became a Christian and I began to zealously defend whatever doctrines that particular church uh, gave to me. And don't get me wrong, the people at that church were absolutely lovely. There was nothing wrong with them at all. It's just where I was in my development. Now, there's two ways you can look at that. You can look at that as a serious misstep and a serious misunderstanding of that spiritual experience, which in a, a profound sense it was. But then on the other hand, if I had not had that period where I was reading the Bible day after day, I, I was more zealous than, than anyone in that church because, I, like you said, I, I had intertwined that genuine spiritual experience with this misstep into, into the realms of theology and, and dogmatism. If I, if I had not been through that process, I wouldn't know the Bible as well as I do now, and I wouldn't be able to relate spirituality to, to the words of the Bible in a way that I think people find very useful when they have been raised within a Christian culture. But because I'd always been an individual that wanted the truth above all else, I couldn't, I, I fortunately, by the grace of God, did not remain in that obnoxious, zealous state for long. There were certain doctrines of the church that I began to study because I really wanted to know everything inside out. And there were certain doctrines that really gave me a lot of problems. And the more I studied them, the more I saw, now these don't really stand up to scrutiny. And so by the grace of God, that innate desire for the truth, that innate, that innate desire I'd had to understand everything, it, it kind of prevailed over my own zeal in the end. And I, I soon abandoned uh, that, that kind of organized religion and, and moved onwards and upwards in my spiritual journey, I would say. But again, I, in a sense, I had to go through that experience because it equipped me for what I would do later on. I could never have written this book, for example, without having had that experience, without having studied Christianity inside out, without knowing the Christian Gnostics and, and everything like that. Mm, very fascinating. Um, I'm curious how long that period of time lasted and also what if you can, uh, if you're willing to share, are the doctrines that you ran into that started to uh, started to uh, give you pause? <laughs> oh, this is uh, yeah. Okay, so that period lasted for maybe three or four years, and the doctrines specifically, well, there were two doctrines, and I don't tend to to bring this up much myself because it's possible there are people watching who fully accept these doctrines, and so I want everyone watching to know that what doctrines you accept, what ideas you have in your head about God and the divine, that's not really important to me. We all have ideas about the divine and things like that. It's the least important thing, <laughs> though religionists don't seem to recognize that. Specifically, it was the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is, is three persons. Um, that's something I, I could not see in the biblical literature itself. And when I looked historically, you know, there's a wonderful... If someone wants to see this laid out crystal clear, there's a wonderful 
there's a wonderful document on the the establishment and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity on and on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's a really wonderful document because it lays out step by step how the the doctrine was developed across the centuries after the death of Christ. But just innately, I had a real problem with that doctrine. It really interfered with my prayer life because prior to that point, prior to me actually entering Christianity, I'd never even heard of the doctrine of the Trinity. I was, despite having, you know, despite having attended Sunday school as a child, I was always under the impression that there was God, there was Jesus, and, and that was it. I didn't know anything about a three-person being, so it was kind of a shock for me to go into Christianity and discover this doctrine, a doctrine that caused havoc in my prayer life because it seems silly now, but when I was praying and I, I was aware I was supposed to be praying to this three-person being, so I'm asking myself, okay, do I pray to one more than the other? But no, that can't be right because the doctrine of the Trinity states that they're co-equal and co-eternal. So it messed with my prayer life. And that was the first sign for me that there was something not quite right here. And so that was a doctrine I had a big problem with. And a doctrine that I had a problem with later on was this notion that Jesus was yet to return. I'm actually of the opinion that he, he did return in the first century, but that's a whole subject in itself. Although in that case, there are many individuals, even in the mainstream church, who acknowledge or who believe, who will outright proclaim that Jesus did indeed arrive in the first century as he told his disciples he would and as the apostles, like the apostle Paul, said that he would. Uh, they're known informally as preterists. Uh, the official term for that uh, theology is fulfilled eschatology. It means that all of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled and there is no need to wait for a savior to come because that has already happened. So, that's kind of, you know, you can understand why I don't necessarily like to bring those things up because anyone who, who believes contrary to what I believe on those subjects is, is going to want to argue about theology, but there's no need for that. You know, I don't have any problem with you if you accept the doctrine of the Trinity or believe whatever you want to believe. That's not what's important in spirituality. Oh, very interesting. Well, which uh, denomination was it that you were involved with at that time? It, it was a Baptist denomination. So, yeah, the only reason I went for that one, again, all, all that was important to me, having had that experience and associating it with Jesus Christ, all that was important to me was that I joined a Christian denomination, but not really being familiar with Christianity at all. I chose that Baptist denomination uh, simply because the minister lived next door to my mother. So I kind of knew him from my childhood. And that was the only reason I chose that Baptist denomination. I, I, I had no idea the kind of doctrines they believed in and the differences between the Baptists and the Methodists and, and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, were you evangelical at that time? Were you, were you, um, you know, going to your friends and family and so on and, and, and people and trying to convert them? I would say, I, I think I knew even during my zeal of the convert stage, I knew better than to try and try and convert my friends and family. It's not that they're anti-religious, but they're very practical, pragmatic people, and I know they wouldn't have, have the time for that, but I did become very sensitive to, to jokes about that kind of thing. Like if someone made a joke that involved Jesus Christ, then I would get very sensitive about it, and you know, I would make clear to them in rather a passive-aggressive passive way in hindsight that I was not happy with them and that they probably shouldn't do that anymore. So I just wasn't any fun to be around because, you know, zealots and fanatics never are. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. Fun is not, not the first word one associates with the, <laughs> yes. the fanatical combat. Um, yeah, very interesting. So what happened then after that? You said you've had several other experiences, um, uh, spiritual experiences since then. I'm wondering if you could perhaps 
say a little bit about what happened after you left that um, that uh, church context, um, and you know maybe something about these other spiritual experiences. There is just a certain point where you've studied so much and you've absorbed so much intellectual information that something in your consciousness it just it just tweaks. There, there's something about the obviousness of the truth that just becomes obvious to you all of a sudden. And from that, although there are different spiritual experiences, there was never again another defining moment like that spiritual awakening, as I would describe it. There was simply a gradual realization of what I would describe as, as the truth from that point forth. But I've had so many spiritual experiences since that time although I never had one during that zeal of the convert stage because I had essentially subverted my own spiritual journey during that period. That period for me was all about acquiring intellectual information that I could later use to, to illustrate the spiritual. But when I came out of that, I think when I came out of that, because I lost a lot of newly, newly found friends during that period, because I made a lot of friends in my, in my time as a Christian, and of course, when I started questioning the doctrine of the Trinity, when I started doubting that Christ really was supposed to return again, those individuals started looking at me like a heretic. So that was rather another blow to me on a personal level that caused rather a fracture to my ego, because here, here I am, someone who's never had that kind of structure in their life before. I found this structure. And believe me, I did not want to start asking all these questions. I did not want to abandon Christianity on an egoic level because I felt comfortable in there. I had found my tribe, as it were, but this innate desire for the truth just wouldn't let me stay silent. It wouldn't let me pretend not to see what I'm seeing. And so that caused a major fracture to my ego. And as I like to say, when the ego fractured, you know, that's when the light of grace has a chance to shine through. And so it was ultimately a blessing. And while there was never another defining experience quite like that, I just gradually came to see the obviousness of the truth. And, and that's what led me to where I am today. In terms of specific spiritual experiences, I had an experience once that still sticks in my mind. I believe I describe it in the book where I was sitting right here and I was just contemplating the, the nature of reality. And I suddenly felt myself fall. But of course, I was sitting on a, a solid sofa here. So I physically didn't fall, but it's like I fell through myself and I fell into a sea of glittering gold almost. At least that's how my mind was picturing the experience. And I was drowning in this, this glittering sea. If you can imagine a body of water with, with big chunks of glitter sprinkled throughout it, that's what this sea was like. But I knew during that experience that that sea was just the way my mind was conceiving of the spirit of God. And even though to drown in anything sounds like a terrifying prospect, I actually wasn't scared at all. In fact, I felt that I could swim through that water for all eternity and never run out of mysteries to discover. Because this, this ocean was the spirit of God, I knew that it had endless mysteries and endless wonders for me to explore. So as terrifying as an, as an experience as it sounds to fall through yourself while you're sitting here and to find yourself in, a, in this ocean where you're drowning, it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. And when I came back to myself, I, I couldn't help but recall the words of the Apostle Paul when he describes the infinite depths of God and how we we can't possibly know all of his riches. So I've had many such experiences, but I would say that those experiences, those kind of experiences, as wonderful as they are and as important as they are 
for one's spiritual journey and and even though we must testify of them they're not the most important thing searching seeking out those kind of experiences is is kind of misguided because when you seek out those kind of majestic experiences those kind of out of body experiences you're necessarily going to overlook the fact that the glory of god is all around us here and what we would regard as the mundane world there's a there's always a risk that in seeking such major experiences you can be neglectful of your mundane life the truth is that life is not mundane in any way it's just a question of how you perceive it and of course the spiritual path helps you to perceive the world for the magical place that it truly is you know you're talking there about um this tweak uh, that occurs that i sort of passed it seems some sort of a saturation point and uh you're talking about the obviousness of the truth uh becomes you know easily readily and presumably consistently accessible um, or tangible what is that truth the truth is okay f the answer to that question honestly would depend on who's asking simply because different souls are at a different place in their spiritual journey and so the truth for one soul is not going to be the same as the truth for another soul and this is not to say that the truth is relative I'm not saying that. It's just that different individuals are in a different place and some individuals aren't ready to hear certain things. I have a lot to say against organized religion. For example, religion ideally should be uh, an environment in which an individual's spirituality is fostered, whereas too often in our world, they become oppressive to, to genuine spirituality. And yet, there may be individuals, well, there's no doubt about it, there are souls out there who at the current time in their development, they need to be in that environment. In the same way that I needed to go through that zeal of the convert phase, even though it was ostensibly a negative, a negative period. But the ultimate truth is that you only need to realize that you yourself are already adequate. You're not, you don't need to seek anything, certainly not anything in the external world, but there is nothing that needs to be added to you for you to make it spiritually speaking and all of this study and all of the practices that any given soul might engage in they are only to the end of recognizing that they were already sufficient from the beginning they were already perfect from the beginning they already had everything that they need by virtue of the fact that they are a soul that they are a, a child of god now it doesn't matter how many times i say that to someone it doesn't matter how many people intellectually agree with that there is a certain point, I go back to that tweak of consciousness, there is a certain point where they have sat with that understanding for some time. You can't convince yourself of it, but there is a certain point where it kind of stews in their mind for a time, and, uh, and there's just a, a point where there's this snap, and they realize the obviousness of it, and they, they experientially recognize the truth of it. And that's the, the kind of recognition that can usher in the kind of powerful spiritual experience we've been talking about. So the ultimate truth is that you already have everything you need. You know, you're the equivalent. Spiritual seekers are, are the equivalent of a man who is in perfect physical shape, who is yet convinced that he needs to go and run on the treadmill day after day, not recognizing his perfection already. That's what souls on, on the spiritual journey are really like. 
But again, it doesn't matter how many times I say that. It doesn't matter how many times I say as a child of God, you have you already are everything you need to be. It doesn't matter. Souls will still have to go through their own path to experientially recognize that themselves. Yeah, very amazing. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of uh, the great mystics of, well, I suppose all the religions, but certainly of, of uh Christianity. I'm thinking, for instance, of St. John of the Cross and the so-called uh, Dark Night of the Soul. I'm thinking also of uh, other mystics who talk about um, desert, desert times or times of hiddenness, where one doesn't, the, the sort of spiritual, if you want, uh, vibe, <laughs> I suppose, of the presence <laughs> of God or whatever, is uh, hidden. Um, I'm wondering if you ever had after this experience or perhaps prior to it uh, you know this pivotal experience in particular uh, any time after it or before i guess I can, anything you'd describe as of as a dark night it's hard for me to say because i i was very depressed in my teenage years and my early 20s De depression was a reoccurring thing for me i used to drink a lot of alcohol in my teenage years and my early 20s and now i haven't touched a drop in many years i, I don't get depressed like that anymore but because my state of being was so often low like that i don't know if i'd be able to distinguish between what mystics have called the dark night of the soul and and just the, the kind of states of being i would i would routinely be in certainly you know since since my spiritual awakening i've never had a period of of real angst like that i've never had any doubt because that experience was so profound i've never once I mean, I can't, it's hard for me to even articulate it like this because it doesn't make sense for me to, to say it like this. I was going to say, though, I've never once doubted the existence of God, but that statement just sounds so ludicrous to me precisely because I could never doubt the existence of God. I always say I don't believe God exists. I know for a fact that God exists. I know it experientially. And so, no, I can't say that I've ever had a period of, of anguish like that. Uh, very fascinating. Um, you're talking about God there. Uh, you write in um, in your book, Experiential Spirituality, just as mystics may be known by many different terms, there are likewise many titles used to refer to the ultimate reality that most call God, the Most High, the One, the Ineffable One, the Source, the Absolute, and the Supreme, to name a few. You go on to say, I use these words... Uh, I'm sorry, I use the terms God and spirit, but do not be concerned if the meaning of those words is vague to you, for they will be fully explained. So I'm wondering um, if you could talk a bit about what do you mean when you say God? Because you, you talk in these, in, in, in these rather Christian uh, vocabulary at times, but very often you're using the words in a, in a really rather different way than one might naturally assume, uh, say, you know, from a Sunday school context or a, a mainline religious context. So can you talk a little bit about this? this idea of God. Yes. This book took three years to write, and it's not because I didn't know what to say. It's not because I struggled to think of anything to say. It's because a book like that can be written in so many different ways. I really had to decide what approach I was going to take. I ultimately decided that I would try to express the spiritual through a Christian and a Christian Gnostic lens, because Religions can serve as, and, and traditions of all kinds, can serve as an entry point for, for souls. 
that's what they're really there for, as I said. Ideally, religion should be a place within which one's spirituality flourishes. So I thought in the book, also because it was a book, and I can have the, the, the time to elaborate on all these different theologies and things like that, I thought that for the book, I would take a decidedly Christian and Christian Gnostic approach. But when, uh, when I make my videos on YouTube, this kind of short-form video content, content, I intentionally dispense with all of that, with all the theology, with all the dogmas, because no one has time, and quite rightly, to learn all these ancient... <laughs> I could talk about the ancient Gnostics and what they believe for two hours, if you let me, but no one has time for that, and quite rightly. So on YouTube, I keep things very matter-of-fact. So my terminology does shift depending on the context. When I say God, what I'm talking about is consciousness itself. One major thing I seek to explain in the book is what spirit actually is, because words like spirit, you know, bearing in mind that you've got the, the New Testament being translated from Koine Greek into English, and so we have these words that's like spirit that come, that come down to us, and to the average person, a word like spirit, it evokes all kinds of magical phenomenon. So when people look for spirit, they're looking for some kind of spectacle out there in the external world, and in the book, I go to great pains to point out how what the ancients described as spirit, at least the word that's, that's given to us, what they were talking about is nothing more than consciousness itself. And so on YouTube, for example, rather than talk about spirit and God, I'll tend to speak about consciousness because then everyone knows where, where we stand. Everyone knows what I mean when I say consciousness. So spirit is nothing more than consciousness and the essence of God is consciousness, is spirit. So when I speak about God, I am speaking simply about consciousness itself. Now, when you recognize that when the ancients spoke of spirit, they were speaking about consciousness, that necessarily reorientates your spiritual journey. If you were ever under the impression that the search for God takes place out there somewhere, then now you know better. Because spirit is consciousness and because the essence of God is spirit is consciousness, the search for God, the spiritual path, the mystic path, it necessarily takes place inside of you. Now, beyond that, I don't say anything about God and deliberately so. And this goes back to an approach that is known in different traditions around the world as negative theology. I, I truly believe that it's more accurate to, to speak of God in negative statements rather than positive ones, because those negative statements are always going to be more accurate by their very nature than the positive statements can be. So when it comes to the nature of God and things like that, it's a tremendous mistake for religionists to believe that they can encapsulate God in their doctrines. That's just not possible. So all I will simply say, and I did say in the book, is that God is consciousness. That's all you need to know. What you discover, what you conclude from that point forth is irrelevant to me personally. All that matters is that you take that journey recognizing that the journey begins inside yourself because you are exploring consciousness fundamentally. Another doctrine that uh, I think is one immediately thinks of when one thinks of Christianity that you write about in the book is heaven and hell. And uh, th these sorts of ideas of heaven and hell, salvation and damnation, th these sorts of themes. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, your perspective on on those matters well not to get too deep into it because then it would turn into a very dry theological monologue here but yeshua jesus he never taught eternal torment 
that is simply a matter of misunderstanding certain statements that he made in the Gospels. You see, proponents of eternal torment within Christianity will often say, well, look, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus did. And that's absolutely true. No one spoke about hell more than, more than Jesus did. The question is, what exactly was he referring to? Was he referring to a place where individuals are tortured unendingly? And I cover it in my book, but the short answer is no. Yeshua never taught of such a place at all. And so that's not to say there's nothing to fear, but what I would say is that heaven and hell are not merely afterlife locations. They are primarily state, a state of being. And this relates to what I just said about God being consciousness and therefore the spiritual journey beginning inside of ourselves, inside of our own consciousness, because it's through that consciousness that we are one with the divine and can never be anything else. If your state of being is, described, is, is what you would describe as a hellish state of being, then you already know what your afterlife destination is. It's a hellish realm of some kind. Conversely, if you are in a blissful state of being, then you know very well that your afterlife destination is a heavenly realm of some kind. Now, those realms are temporary, I would say, but heaven and hell begins here and now. So those who look to the afterlife and neglect their state of being here for fear of, you know, who neglect their state of being here because they're so preoccupied with the afterlife, they're missing the point because it's your very state of being that will dictate your afterlife. If you're not in a blissful heavenly state while you're, you're living here in the flesh, then you shouldn't expect to be in a blissful heavenly state in the hereafter. It's just, that's just the, the, the way it is. And so I tend to focus less on theoretical afterlives, even though I know it's very exciting to speculate about, it's very exciting to talk about. I would rather focus on what each individual soul state of being is here in the present, because that is what, what is most important, not just for the afterlife, but for their present life. I'd like to actually perhaps finish. Um, um, I've got a couple more questions, but maybe towards the end. Uh, towards the end, I'd like to ask you a bit actually about how to address one's state of being. You know, what can be done now? How should one, uh, you know, practice or, as you as you've put it, experiencing the spirit, for example? How can one do that? What's the orientation? Uh, but first of all, uh, I'd like to return to this idea of gnosis, and you write. The Gnostics are named after the experience of Gnosis, uh, knowledge, which can be best described as divine insight or revelation, a knowing in your deepest being that transcends mere intellectual understanding. Whatever else they may differ on, Gnostic groups always had Gnosis as their central emphasis. It's for this reason that Gnosticism is often perceived as being the most mystical form of Christianity. And it's why the term Gnostic, when not used in the strictly sectarian sense, can be understood as being synonymous with mystic. For the experience of transcendent knowing that the Gnostics called Gnosis is central to remembrance of the spirit. My own awakening was an experience of Gnosis, as all awakenings are. And sometimes Gnosis is uh, contrasted with knowledge that comes through, uh, perhaps I'm mischaracterizing it here, you could correct me, a more mundane means, like a learning something from a book or, uh, you know, acquiring a doctrine from someone teaching you something, for example. So I'm curious, um, you know, you have read extensively uh, on spiritual topics and you've also had, so you're well informed on that level, and you've also had uh, this 
profound awakening experience and and from what you've uh, uh, recounted several others actually so how much of your view is direct gnosis and how much of it is from what you've read and what is the interaction between those different those different ways of knowing for you there was a, that's that's a great question because there there came a certain point where i i essentially abandoned everything that i'd that i'd that i'd read that i'd absorbed on an intellectual level because as i said if someone lets me i will happily talk for 2 hours about the, the intricacies of ancient gnostic theology and I came to see that, that, you know, that's really an egoic indulgence. It's just because I like to talk about that kind of thing. That's not what people, souls out there in the world, need to hear at the current time. What they need to hear is straightforward, simple advice regarding their spiritual journey. In other words, how to, how to raise their, their state of being, how to raise their level of consciousness, if you will. That's what people really need. So... Me indulging myself by talking about the Gnostics for two hours isn't going to help anyone. It's just going to make me have fun because that's my idea of fun. Um, so I realized that I needed to dispense with everything that I'd learned in a sense. I could, I could still keep it in the back of my mind for, for those occasions where I encounter an individual who is likewise informed on that so I can have that back and forth with them in an, an informed fashion. But for the average person, like when I'm making my YouTube videos, I'm speaking in a very straightforward fashion. So for me, I, I try to do exactly what I encourage others to do, which is to dispense with all these ancient theologies, dispense with all the dogmas, dispense with all the religion, dispense with all your speculation. Just use simple, practical methods, things like meditation, things like prayer. And never mind what others have said in the past, never mind what all these uh, different souls have said in the past. What do you say now based on your own experience? I have no interest at all, and I say this at the end of the book, I have, I have my beliefs, I have my ideas about reality, but I have no interest at all in other individuals just believing what I tell them. What I want them to do is put into practice the, the simple pointings that, that I give. And if they come to radically different conclusions on reality by doing so, then that's perfectly fine with me. What matters are those simple practical steps. And you know what, what they do with that, what they do with the, their experience from that is, is really down to them. So for me, yes, I, I'm very consciously one who, who goes by my own experience now because I truly believe that my insights based on those experiences can be helpful to others. And, and so they have been. Mm, very fascinating. So let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the practical steps that to, as you put it, to raise the, the level of one's consciousness. You write... Most souls fundamentally misunderstand the means by which to engage in spirituality. Being unaware of any alternative, they assume that one acquires spiritual understanding in the same way that one would acquire understanding of anything else. Therefore, they set out to examine as much information pertaining to the spiritual as possible. But since the spiritual can never be substantiated through material or intellectual endeavors, they're left crippled by doubt, their faith being based not upon a lived experience of the spirit, but upon the testimony of sacred texts, historical theories, apologetics, and, and otherworldly things that, unlike experience of the spirit, leave room for doubt and are vulnerable to being overturned. And you also write uh, later, despite the transcend... Dis <laughs> I do speak English, you know. Okay. 
Despite the transcendent nature of the spirit that mystics exist to make known, the means of experiencing the spirit are very straightforward. You need only be willing to stop pretending to know that which you do not know, to see reality as it truly is, and to put mystical claims to the test. So uh, if, we, if we get practical now, you've talked about pointings, you've talked about um, things that we can do or ways we can uh, engage practices, etc., whatever the case may be. Um, what, what, what's your view on that? What do you offer um, uh, people on that topic? Well, the eagle, the eagle loves information. The eagle would just absorb information forever. And the reason I had to address the very definition of spirituality in the beginning of the book, and that's it's there that I explain the reason I titled the book Experiential Spirituality, is that most souls fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the spiritual quest. Most souls, to put it simply, they turn their spirituality into an intellectual project. And so in the case of many souls, their spirituality is nothing more than an intellectual project where they're, they're constantly reading their, their favorite sacred text. They're constantly um, studying their theologies. And, and to them, that is spirituality, but it's not by definition. Again, I go back to the, the reason we have different categories, the physical, the intellectual, and the spiritual. If your spirituality is purely an intellectual exercise, then it's necessarily not spirituality because spirituality is experiential. <laughs> That's why I emphasize experiential spirituality. And so I would encourage individuals, first of all, to do the very opposite of what they want to do, which is to, as I said in the book, stop pretending, stop pretending to know things that they don't know. And if they're really honest with themselves, there are a whole load of ideas they have about reality. There are a whole load of beliefs that they really don't know to be true. And it's fine to have ideas. It's fine to have beliefs, but to elevate them to the position of certainty when they have not met that criteria is, is very is very misguided. As I like to say, you can't hope, you know, it's only in the realms of spirituality that we can speak about truth with a capital T, absolute truth, but you cannot hope to approach absolute truth while you're deceiving yourself. So at the very beginning, before we even talk about meditation and things like that, there has to be a fundamental realignment. There has to be a fundamental uh, reassessment of what what you're all about and what exactly you're trying to achieve here and your integrity and in, in trying to achieve it so the first thing is to stop pretending to know things stop pretending to know things that you don't know uh, the next thing would be that you simply have to go by what your own experience has taught you now there's nothing wrong i love reading sacred texts from around the world i love reading the gospels i could recite much of the new testament off by heart i absolutely love that there's nothing wrong with that and those, those texts were written to give us wisdom. But if you don't have your own experiences, then you don't have any basis upon which to believe anything. See, the whole point, the whole point of scriptures, the whole point of, of the books of the New Testament, for example, the reason they were written was that so individuals could testify of spiritual experiences that they or others had had. Uh, the whole point is that you are to go now and come to know God yourself so that you can have your own experiences and you can develop your own sense of what is true, spiritually speaking. And so, first of all, you have to dispense with pretending to know things that you don't know. Second of all, you have to understand that your spirituality is your own. You may get inspiration from other souls around the world. You may get inspiration from all kinds of sacred texts, but ultimately that path is your own. So those are the, the two 
most essential building blocks, I would say, of any of any spiritual journey. If you don't have those things in place, if you think that your spirituality is an intellectual project, if you think you can just elevate your hopes or your beliefs to the to the point of certainty and and approach the truth, then you're very misguided in that way. So I would say that's the foundation of experiential spirituality. And assuming that foundation, do you recommend things like meditation? You've mentioned that word a few times, or prayer, or uh, being alone in nature, and so on. Or what, do you have certain, um, I suppose, practices that you yourself engage in, or that you you recommend to others? Absolutely, both prayer and meditation are are very very important. In the book, I talk about how, broadly speaking, you, there's the introspective path and the devotional path. Now, prayer and meditation, they are often seen as separate things, and an individual might pray but not meditate, another individual might meditate but not pray. I, I, I kind of see them as, as, as going together. The way I like to, to put it is that prayer is speaking to God and meditation is listening to God. You, know, you wouldn't say something to someone and then walk away without hearing what they have to say in response. By the same token, I don't believe that one should uh, pray to God and then stand up and immediately get on with their day. I believe that prayer is speaking to God, meditation is listening to God. So you you pray to God and you say whatever you have to say, say what you want to say. I would recommend just speaking to God like you speak to anyone. Share, of course, God knows these things, but just share what's been happening in your day. You know, we pray not because it benefits God, but because it benefits us. Because in the case of both prayer and meditation, the the comparison I've used before is that while we are here in the world, while we are souls here in the world, we are like like batteries and we need to be recharged. When we go to pray or when we go to meditate, what we are doing is, is recharging, essentially. And so you pray to God, you say what you want to say, and then you sit and you meditate. You listen to the silence. And and that is where you, you receive whatever whatever benefits you are going to receive uh, during that period. So yes, I recommend prayer and I recommend meditation. The only thing I do not recommend is, is, is encumbering those practices with all manner of rituals, because there are all kinds of meditation practices in the modern day that, that involve such elaborate ceremony that I really think they miss the point, because for me, it's the simplicity that is, that is one of the things that's so powerful about prayer and about meditation if you start making them so elaborate, then you have once again, your, your mind is once again attempting to turn what is fundamentally a spiritual activity into an intellectual project, and then it just becomes food for the ego. So yes, I recommend prayer and I recommend uh, meditation because as I say, for us, it's like, it's like being recharged because we have an opportunity to return to source, as it were. If someone was to ask you, how, to, how do I meditate? What would you say to them? What's, what's, what's the heart of meditation and its procedure for you? It's very simple. I, I deliberately do not overcomplicate these things. Uh, you sit down and you just get comfortable. You don't have to have, for me, there's no specific posture or anything like that. You sit down, you are as comfortable as possible. And the most crucial thing in meditation for me uh, relates to the mind because individuals will instinctively try to combat the thoughts that arise in the mind during meditation because they find it distracting. In the same way that if they have a bodily sensation like an itch, they will immediately go to scratch themselves. What I emphasize is that 
you do not need to combat the phenomenon of the mind, any thoughts that might arise, be they positive or negative, because it's the nature of the mind that thoughts will arise like that. And if you try to combat those thoughts, you're offering resistance and that will just cause those thoughts to become more chaotic. So a key point for me in meditation is that you simply let things be. You, you let things be, whether it be bodily phenomenon or mental phenomenon or emotional phenomenon or something you're hearing out there in the external world. You just simply sit and be. And in time, no matter how chaotic your mind or emotions might be, you will reach that, what I would describe going back to what I said earlier, you will reach that place of inner silence where that lower phenomenon as it truly is, it becomes completely irrelevant to you. And you can stand up from that session of meditation feeling not only relaxed as is the cliche with meditation, but you can stand up from meditation feeling just amazingly, amazingly odd, amazingly joyful. And so I keep things very simple, as I said, and that's all I really have to say on the subject of meditation. If individuals then want to build on that themselves, and maybe they have to because it suits them as you know, it suits their individual preferences, but that's as simple as I, I keep it as far as meditation is concerned. Interesting. Thank you. I wonder if I might ask you a couple uh, other quick fire questions, I suppose. Um, do you have the time? Do you have another 15 minutes? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Love. Love is one of those words that, uh, of course, it's different in different languages. It seems to be uh, often spoken of uh, in different traditions. Love, compassion. Uh, one thinks of Rumi. Of course, the, uh, the Bible full of full of that. Um, what's your take on love? Where does love fit into into your uh, perspective? Well, when it comes to that, this is a, a source of, of great misunderstanding for, for many souls. This is, I'm, I'm very glad you raised this because it's an issue that, that I like to raise frequently myself. If we look at the teachings of Yeshua, if we look at the teachings of Jesus, what he has to say about love and what, what the biblical authors had to say about love generally is much misunderstood. And it's misunderstood because of the way that the modern world understands love namely as, as primarily being an emotion. See, if you understand love as being solely an emotion or mostly an emotion, then you have no hope of understanding what, what Jesus had to say about love or what any writer of the biblical text had to say about love. And you will tie yourself up in knots trying to live out the impossible because love is not an emotion, first and foremost. Love is an act, first and foremost. To love another is to act benevolently, benevolently towards them. So I'll give you an example of how this, this can really help illuminate the, the true meaning of, of certain passages in the Bible. And it's not because I have a tremendous emphasis on the Bible, it's just because this is something that I think everyone watching will be familiar with, and therefore they can understand what I'm saying. So Jesus said that we must love even our enemies. Now, the vast majority of souls understand Jesus to be saying there that we must have a positive emotional disposition towards our enemies because most souls understand love as being only or mostly an emotion. But that's not what any biblical author meant by using the word love. When Jesus says that we must love our enemies, he's not saying that we must force ourselves impossibly to have 
an emo a positive emotional disposition to someone that we might very well hate on an emotional level, he is simply saying that regardless of how you feel about this individual, you should behave in a beneficial fashion towards them. You should behave in a caring fashion towards them. This is why every single example that Jesus gives of love is a practical example. So bringing someone who is thirsty a cup of water, feeding someone who is hungry, these are practical examples that, that Jesus gives. He never talks about simply emoting over someone as a form of loving them. That's not, that's not what it means. You see, the thing is that I've, I personally, I'm not, very, uh, I'm not a very sentimental guy myself on a, on a personal level. And the biblical authors, given the, the time and place in which they were, they were writing, they weren't either. So another example, uh, the apostle John in his book, he, he talks of God being love. Well, what does that mean exactly? Because given that most individuals understand love to be nothing but or primarily an emotion, what they're imagining is God as some kind of maelstrom of emotion, when all the Apostle John was simply saying is that God is infinitely benevolent. <laughs> it's really, you know, it's really as simple as that. So I would like to clear this misunderstanding of, of what love so often means up. You know, as I like to say, you know, there are many abusive husbands in this world who will say with a straight face that they love their wives, the very wives that they're abusing. And you know what? When they say that, they genuinely mean it. And they genuinely mean it because they feel a certain way towards that individual on an emotional level. But are they loving towards their wife in terms of their actions? No, of course not. And that is the most important aspect of love because you can feel any way you want about another individual. You can hate them or you can love them. But if you're not behaving beneficially towards them, then, then that's all that's going to, to count at the end of the day. So that's my take on, on love. That's very interesting. It's something I think that naturally uh, one always thinks of with this sort of discussion is um, this idea of turning the other cheek. So it's one thing to be benevolent to somebody who you might dislike or um, feel neutral about or whatever the case may be. But it's another thing, or perhaps it isn't, when someone is actively attempting to wrong you or uh, do you wrong in some sort of a way, harm you in some sort of a way. Um, th therefore, it's not, uh, one isn't necessarily approaching that person. Uh, one's being approached with ill intent, let's put it that way. And so what do, you, what do you have to say about that kind of situation? Of course, I think popularly people would think, well, didn't Jesus say, turn the other cheek, you know, um, uh, love those who persecute you, etc., etc." So how do you frame that side of things? Well, this is uh, a misunderstanding that people often have of me because you know, in the book, I'm speaking from the perspective of the, the Christian tradition and the Christian Gnostic tradition. But as I said, I really only did that in the book, one, because it's a, a, a suitable thing to do in a format like a book where you've got all the time in the world to elaborate upon these things. But I use the Christian and the Christian Gnostic tradition specifically because I'm more informed on those traditions than any other tradition. But I myself, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian Gnostic. I have a very universalist view of all traditions. The way I like to compare religions is that Imagine you have a landscape and upon that landscape are all these, these wells that have been designed in different ways. Those wells are comparable to the religions of the world and the source of water that they're all trying to get to, that would be God, that would be spirit, that would be consciousness. Now, the mistake that religionists make is to focus on the design of the well and to argue about um, their well being better than another. They never 
focus on what's most important, which is getting to the to the to the source. So, of course, different religions uh, are are contradictory. They 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 can't be they're not compatible with one another, but that's okay because they're all designed to lead to the same source, and it's the source that's important. So, I have a very universalist view of religion, and when it comes to the teaching of Yeshua or Jesus on pacifism, he was giving the teachings that were appropriate for his followers at that time given the context in which they lived. Here you have these poor Jewish individuals who are living under the Roman Empire. <laughs> uh, they, they did not have a chance to, to, to have any kind of armed resistance against the Roman Empire. But you don't have to look to someone like the Prophet Muhammad to see an example of someone who took a very different approach when it came to violence, someone who actively engaged in violence, nor do you have to look thousands of years earlier to Krishna, especially as portrayed in a text like the Bhagavad Gita, eh, where he's encouraging Arjuna to go into, to go into battle. You, have to, you only have to look to, to the very scriptures that Jesus himself venerated, namely what we now call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of war, often war that is carried out at God's behest, so, yeah, there's no doubt at all uh, that Jesus himself taught pacifism. But my point would simply be that different mystics, diff the, the great mystics of the past taught different things depending upon the context in which, in which they live. So just because Jesus taught pacifism, as indeed he did, that doesn't mean that that's the ultimate teaching for all time. It depends on who you are and when you are. A problem with religionists generally is that they tend to exist in a time warp so most Christians, for example, will tend to will tend to behave and act as if they are first century Jews when they are not. So when it comes to other souls and how they react to a situation where they are facing some manner of threat, well, there's only one there's only one point of reference as far as those kind of uh, moral decisions are concerned. It's not any kind of sacred text, and it's certainly not me. It's your own conscience, because as I like to say, your conscience is the voice of God. Your conscience will tell you in any given situation you know, what you should be doing. If someone poses a physical threat to you, your conscience will tell you how to react to that, and that's the only moral guide you need. Indeed, as I elaborate upon in the book to, to great length, the whole dichotomy throughout the New Testament that the Apostle Paul uh, laid out between the Old the Old Testament law, the Mosaic laws given by Moses, and the Spirit of God is this issue of a written moral code and the conscience itself. The conscience is necessarily superior to any moral code because a moral code necessarily de deals in absolutes to some degree, and it can never be as dynamic as the conscience is. So, as with every other moral situation, with every other moral decision, I would simply recommend that individuals do not defer to sacred texts, don't defer to some other soul in human form, but defer to their own conscience, because by doing so, they cannot go wrong, morally speaking. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, uh, what you're saying is sort of opening up the next question in a way. And so the next question that comes from that is, um, and once again, I, I suppose I'm I'm tr I'm tracking an association that's within the Christian context, and uh, I understand that that's you're not limiting yourself to that. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a, it's a jumping off point yeah, for yeah. sure. And uh, what about repentance then? Sometimes one might feel one's done something wrong, or one's acted against one's own conscience, or was too distracted perhaps to really hear the voice of one's 
conscience, for example, or whatever, or just acted straight straight against it, and regret something in the past. This is com it's common, I think. Um, how do you see that uh, idea of repentance or purification, etc.? It's a tradition. It's a it's a theme that runs through so many of the world's religions. This idea of uh, forgiveness, repentance, etc., purification, atonement. When it comes to other individuals, the first thing I would say is that repentance is a prerequisite for forgiveness. There is no notion, and if we're talking about Christianity, there is no notion in the biblical text that one should be forgiven without them first having repented. That's never the case. Not even with Jesus is that the case. So repentance literally just means to turn around. It means to, to change your, your behavior. So you recognize that you have been living, and let's just use biblical terminology, living in sin, and sin literally just means to miss the mark. You realize you have been missing the mark in some way in your life and you repent. So you literally turn around and behave in the opposite fashion. And once someone has, has done that, there is there's nothing more that needs needs to be to be done. And people people have to be very careful about distinguishing between whether you know having having changed their ways, having repented in the in a genuine fashion, whether what's causing them trouble is really their conscience or is it their mind? Because these are two very distinct things. And if you let the mind trouble you on things that you have done wrong in the past, then it will trouble you forever over those things because that's just the nature of the mind. But the conscience will not trouble you if you have, one, truly repented, changed your ways. But also another thing that can be very important is that there are many times in our lives where we do things wrong and there is no way for us to make amends at all because what we did wrong was so long ago and maybe perhaps we don't know the individuals anymore. And so there's nothing we can do about that. But in many cases, th there are things that individuals can do to, to make amends, but they simply don't because, of course, it's easier not to. It's one thing to say to yourself, okay, what I did there was wrong, so I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to change my ways. But then say to yourself, eh, but I'm not going to bother trying, you know, making it up with this individual that I wronged when, when I know I could. So it's not just about repentance on a personal level. It can also be about uh, making it up to someone that you have wronged when you still have the opportunity to do so. But if those options aren't available to you, then yes, there, there's nothing more you can do. You have done everything you can in the sight of God and your conscience should trouble you no more on that particular matter. Okay, then perhaps one last question on the uh, on these, I suppose, spiritual themes. I'm curious, from your view, I mean, experientially, what, um, how you, how do you view yourself, and I suppose by extension others, in terms of identity? One sometimes hears of, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, maybe uh, seeing through the illusion of the self. Um, as the identification with the self anyway, and no self, or perhaps unification with um, Atman or something like this. Almost always mystics have some kind of uh, adjustment to their view of themselves, their sense of identity uh, and how they see themselves in that way. So I'm curious if that's been the case for you. And if so, what would you say about that subject of identity and uh, both in terms of yourself and also how you see others? Well, this is one of the most fundamental issues is this question of identity, because if you misidentify your nature, then you cannot see beyond whatever level you've identified with the way, you know, there are many different ways we can break down our composition. 
know, I, I often mention how the theosophists, for example, they break down our, our being into seven different, different things, which I think is a bit much. <laughs> the thing is, when we're dealing with these big spiritual issues, models can only ever be pointers. They can never be accurate depictions of, of what's going on. So I, I break down our, our being into the four components. There is the, the spirit, the consciousness that we fundamentally are. Then we have an ethereal form, what would also be called a, a phantom or astral form. Then there is the mind, then there is the physical body. That's as, that's as complicated as it needs to be, really, because having those four different components of our being can really serve to, you can illustrate all manner of things using that simple model. Now, most human beings, they fully identify themselves with the flesh. They believe that they are their physical form. And this is true of even those who, who would espouse religious beliefs as well. Um, they, they may espouse all kinds of ideas about themselves being something more than their physical form, but because they haven't experientially known that to be the case, which is fundamental, because it's just an intellectual idea, they don't really live as if that's the case. Because if you truly believed yourself to be a soul, a spirit, or whatever word you might describe, you would live very differently than if you believed yourself to be the physical body. So matters of identity are, are very important. Also because if you, for example, do not truly experientially know yourself to be something beyond the mind or beyond the ethereal form where your emotions are felt, then you must necessarily be subject to the phenomenon that is experienced on those levels. If you don't recognize that you transcend the mind, then you must necessarily be vulnerable to the phenomenon of the mind, all those thoughts that arise. If you don't see yourself as being above your emotional center, as it were, then you must necessarily be vulnerable to, to the emotional turmoil that we all go through at some point. But when you recognize, not just intellectually, but fundamentally, experientially, that you are the infinite formless consciousness, the infinite formless spirit, then you must necessarily recognize that you tr transcend all of that that lower phenomenon and therefore it can only overpower you if you allow it to overpower you so the way i understand myself has radically changed not because i discovered some model or some illustration in a book somewhere that appealed to me and i decided hey that's how i want to understand reality it's because through my own uh, experiential journey i have learned precisely how to overcome these different levels of phenomenon, if you will, and why it is even possible in the first place. It's possible because I am, and I always was, that formless, infinite spirit. Everything else, the ethereal form, the mental form, and its associated ego, and the physical form, they are what the Gnostics would call emanations from that consciousness. Now, they are a reality as much as anything on this level is a reality, but they are a temporary reality. One day, David McMurdo will die in physical terms. One day, David McMurdo will die in terms of that intellectual construct we call an ego falling apart. And perhaps too, the ethereal form will fade away. But the, the consciousness, the consciousness and the spirit from which we all flow, that will never fade away. And that is what I fundamentally am. And so I like to say that, you know, while I can't live in, no one can live in the world uh, you know, espousing that understanding. I can't just discard the reality of me being David McMurdo because when I walk out my front door, everyone knows me as David McMurdo. They relate to me in a certain way and that's perfectly fine. But as I like to say, you have to treat that, that human identity in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. 
yes, it's a reality for a brief time, but don't take it too seriously because ultimately this is all just a, a great cosmic play and we are all fundamentally that consciousness. It is in that consciousness that we are one with one another and it's within that consciousness that we are one with God because God is consciousness. Well, David, this has been uh, such a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, your book is Experiential Spirituality, The Mystic Answer to Everything uh, by David McMurdo. Where can people find out more about you? You have a YouTube channel. That's actually a, a, a really large part of what you do. Uh, could, you, yes, could you talk a little yes. bit about the YouTube channel and, and, and so on? Yes, as I may or may not have demonstrated throughout this discussion, I've always felt that I'm a better writer than speaker. And so it was very natural for me when I when I had this this when I reached where I did in my spiritual journey, I needed to share it. I had this this need to 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 help people get to to where I I reached on my own spiritual journey. And because I've always felt that I'm a better writer than speaker, the first thing I did was write a book. <laughs> but now having done that, yes, you know I've been on YouTube for 17 years, so it seemed like the obvious choice to to start producing a video content on YouTube for the same reason, you know, to, to spread the same message essentially. So yes, you can find me on YouTube under my name, David McMurdo. I upload a new video every single weekday. I do a live stream every Saturday and I also do another live stream on the Sunday as well. So yeah, there's lots and lots of, of content there and uh, everything that I say in the book, I, I, I lay out and I, I elaborate upon on my YouTube channel as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder, and as we're bringing this to a close, if there's anything that we haven't talked about or anything that you haven't said that you'd like to say, doesn't have to be, but I'm, I'm just wondering if, if there is such a thing. I feel like there should be, but I can't really think of anything. We, we covered so much ground here. It was a really, I, I found it to be a really enjoyable interview. And I don't think there's, there's anything, uh, anything left to say, really. David McMurdo, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.